Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Uh, I am Jim Grant, and with me as usual today is Eric Whitehead at the controls, or Eric's our engineer, the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, who is, uh, his mic has been muted, but he's still here, Fabiano Santin, who uh, is on the staff of Grant's and does some of our very best credit work is with us as well today. Hey, we have some news. We have chosen a name for this podcast. The more I read about podcasts, the more I realize that you can't have an unnamed podcast and being and be taken seriously in the world of podcasts. So we're going to call this Current Yield, which was the name that my late great mentor, Robert M. Blyberg, attached to the column I wrote at Barron's about 150 years ago. So uh, yeah, Current Yield. Current Yield's name is podcast. Uh, we have, as usual, I'm very glad to have them indeed, Zip Recruiter uh, for your hiring needs. And we have a new sponsor. We have uh, SaneBox which is going to uh, take the insanity out of your email. And joining us today as a guest, a very welcome guest indeed, is Tony Canale, who is the Global Head of Research at Covenant Review, those people who do such fine work reading and uh, interpreting the fine print that nobody else seems to want to read, uh, fine print in the loan documents. So, so this is a show about credit, which is a topic ever so timely, indeed urgent. Thanks to be here, Jim. Well, it's good to have you. You know, what prompted our invitation, not that we really need one, a prompt that is, to reach out to Covenant Review. What prompted the immediate email was news that the state of Delaware um, has uh, enacted uh, something that is meant to separate even more of their creditors from their money than hitherto had been the case. Can you tell us what happened in Delaware and uh, what it means? Sure, sure. Well, what happened was Delaware recently amended its Limited Liability Company Act to allow limited liability companies to divide. And so basically what they allowed is that any LLC can be divided into more than one LLC. So the existing LLC is basically required to adopt something called a plan of division. And that plan of division sets forth how the existing LLC's assets and liabilities are allocated between the two separated LLCs. So long as that plan of division is not deemed a fraudulent transfer, each of the separate LLCs once the plan has taken place, would only be liable for the liabilities that have been allocated to it. So, as you can imagine, this raises issues, significant issues on under credit documents. Oh, I'll bet. You know, uh, Fabiano has been uh, making a study of some of the fine print in um, those uh, senior claims called leverage loans, you know, tradable bank debt, and uh, has discovered all manner of... Uh, Fabiano, will you characterize this as, 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 uh, as slippery language? Or, anyway, for example, in the case of of, um, of uh, J. Crew, right? There's something called a trap door. Mm. And uh, Fabiano, what would that entail? What, what risk does a trap door pose to a credit? Jim, so basically, J. Crew, leaning on some loosely written covenants in the credit agreement, uh, was able to divert some intellectual property assets away from the collateral package that supports their secure loan. Then they were able to uh, use those assets to pay down subordinated debt. And so, Tony, why don't you tell us some of the details behind the transaction. Sure. So what J. Crew had in its credit agreement was a provision that has now become known in the marketplace as the J. Crew trapdoor. And what that provision is, it is it's a provision that says you can make investments from a non-guarantor restricted subsidiary into an unrestricted subsidiary so long as you could have moved the assets into the non-guarantor restricted subsidiary to begin with. So in credit agreement documents, unlike most high-yield indentures, there are restrictions on the amount of value that 
that can be transferred from loan parties like the issuers and guarantors into non-loan parties, even if non-loan parties are restricted subsidiaries. And the reasons are obvious. Obviously, the creditors want most of the value to be present in entities that are liable for the debt. And so with J. Crew, what they did was capacity was constrained to invest in unrestricted subsidiaries under other baskets. So in addition to the other baskets, they said, we're going to invest in a non-guarantor restricted subsidiary. We're going to move some of these assets there in step one. And then in step two, we're going to move those assets from the non-guarantor restricted subsidiary to an unrestricted subsidiary. And all of this came out when J. Crew ultimately got sued by its, by its creditors. And that's how we learned specifically what they relied on when they made these transactions. Yeah. Not, not to put too fine a point on it, Tony, this seems borderline deceitful. Uh, is that, uh, it's a lay term of, it's a lay term, but is, know, is it overly severe? I, I, I think, I think that that is not an unfair characterization, Jim. I mean, I guess the, the issue is, you know, people, creditors definitely don't, creditors definitely don't expect an issuer to do some of the aggressive things that issuers end up doing. What the, the problem for creditors is that issuers tend to say, hey, look, if you guys look at the fine print, the language is right there. Yeah, right, and in the right. court of law, you know, a court is not inclined to view, you know, the parties to a dispute over an indenture with, you know, uh, with too much sympathy, given that they are deemed to be sophisticated investors and know how to read what's written. So it just goes to underscore the importance on reading the fine print and understanding not just what it says, but how opportunistic issuers have used that in the past. And yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a spirit of trust that is implicit in the institution of credit itself. I mean, if you when you walked into the Moody's building years ago, I've forgotten whether they've moved the this uh, uh, this uh, inscription into the new place, but uh, it was at the Moody's headquarters uh, yesteryear, and what it said was uh, a man's faith in man or man's trust in man, that being the essential feature of credit. I don't know. It, it seems to me that this too clever by half stuff is moving us uh, worryingly away from the uh, article of faith. But you know, this, what makes all of this so timely, I guess, is the, among other things, is the immense amount of debt outstanding and and on its way. I see this in something called Refinitive. Refinitive is the uh, name attached to the uh, portion of uh, of Thomson, uh, Thomson Reuters that is going to be uh, spun off from the news division. And this is the uh, financial analysis and the risk division, I guess, is it not? And they're going to issue something like, I don't know, what, $8 billion of leveraged loans uh, and uh, five or so, five and a half maybe of junk bonds. And, uh, and I don't Refinitive, for one thing, it sounds like uh, it's, it sounds like you need a prescription for it, doesn't it? It's, 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 uh, uh, but with so much debt out there and with so many options, as you gently put it, Tony, on, available to the creditor, you, you have to watch out, do you not? You do. You, you know, the way I try to explain it to people when I'm trying to explain, you know, the theory behind how these covenants are drafted is that they're drafted almost as if you would imagine, like, to, to be made a tailor-made suit, where basically there's all kinds of optionality built into those dots. So to the extent that the credit is performing and things are going well and the bonds are traded up or the company is able to do things like dividends or spin-off subsidiaries or what have you in good times. And conversely, if things go poorly for the credit, the credit has to, the covenants have to have that flexibility built in to allow the issuer to move opportunistically and do things to capture value at the expense of its creditors. That's the way a sponsor typically thinks about how it puts together its its, its covenant. Well, we are with uh, uh, Tony Canale at uh, Covenant Review, who heads the research operation and a substantial research operation it is. Um, Tony, as an authority, um, both by training and experience in uh, the this fine art of getting your money back as a creditor, uh, what else ought people in the bond market, what should they be looking at? What are the uh, perhaps not so evident risks that confront creditors in the, in the world today, corporate creditors? It's a, it's a 
great question, Jim. And, and, and unfortunately, part of the problem is that, you know, trying to educate people on what boilerplate language that is very sleepy and tiresome to read, what it really means in practice. So when one thinks about something like the J. Crew scenario or the opportunity to move value to unrestricted subsidiaries, you get their attention. When you start going down into the nuts and bolts of the documents, it becomes harder to hold their attention. But I think that this is very important stuff that we're seeing now in the markets on the language that, that investors really need to be focused on. So, for example, there used to be a long-standing requirement in a restricted payments covenant, and that's the covenant that governs it in high-yield indenture, the ability to make dividends, the ability to invest in unrestricted subsidiaries, the ability to do all kinds of things that let value leak out from the credit. There used to be a restriction in that thing that says, if you're using basket build, which is this cumulative you know, pot of capacity they have to send to use to pay dividends and do this kind of stuff, if you're using this capacity, you have to be able to meet a certain ratio test, right. pro forma. Right. That's been in high yield for a long time. And starting in 2013, KKR came out with some deals that basically eliminated that requirement when it came to making investments. Uh, and the deal was Gardner Denver. We screamed bloody murder about it then, but it did clear the market and it's been put in a lot of other deals, including the PetSmart deal since then, including a lot of other deals. Only now are people starting to understand that when you're focused on the ability of an issuer in a distressed context to make investments in unrestricted subsidiaries, this lack of a ratio debt requirement is huge because if an issuer is less than two times under a fixed charge coverage ratio and they have basket build available, they could still loot that and put it in an unrestricted subsidiary conceivably. Yeah. So things like that, they're very technical points, but the bottom line is even when things are going bad and the issuer wants to move value to an unrestricted subsidiary, you don't have the kind of protections you used to have in the past. That's yeah. just one example. Well, I like the verb to loot. That seems like a, a good old-fashioned monosyllabic direct verb. <laughs> We're going to pause here just one second, Tony, because uh, sure. you know we this is a commercial enterprise, and we have a couple of very fine sponsors. Uh, one is ZipRecruiter.com, about uh, which you'll be hearing presently, and the other is is SaneBox. Is uh, yeah, SaneBox. Now, Tony, I can't uh, speak for you, but I can speak for myself. When when your wife's own emails she wind up in spam, you know something is wrong with the system of email we have now. Just know it. And my right. wife and I are very close, and uh, still from time to time, her emails wind up in spam, whereas direct emails from certain political parties. Well, indeed, emails, on, you know, for example, I must, I don't mean to get personal here, but a, an email announcing a Bitcoin conference, a, a crypto conference in North Korea, which I'm certain was coming through Eric Whitehead, who, as you may or may not know, Tony, is a, is a devotee of the Democratic Republic of North Korea. This came to my inbox and did not get into spam. I don't know how these things happen. Anyway, SaneBox is there, is here uh, to help you manage your email, to save you all manner of time during the day uh, to uh, send junk into the black hole it is intended to go to and to uh, organize your email to remind you what you ought to respond to and so forth. It is. It sounds like uh, a lifesaver. So, you know, uh, because you can use, all of us can use more organization in our email lives. We, uh, SaneBox and us, have worked out a great deal as follows. Visit SaneBox.com slash grant today and they'll uh, th throw in an extra $25 credit on the top of your two-week tr free trial. So you don't have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy. So there's nothing really to lose. Just check it out today and let me know if you love the black hole and reaching into inbox zero as much as I do. So again, it's sanebox.com slash grant. Tony, we have been looking around at the junk market uh, and uh, have observed that uh, there is uh, important contingent new supply uh, from that uh, very, very substantial source called the, uh, the triple B world. 
investment-grade securities rated on the, on the border of the frontier of, of speculative. Now, Fabiana, you have looked at some of these figures, have you not? Yes, Jim. So basically, AT&T is triple B rated, and it has about $139 billion in senior unsecured U.S. dollar-denominated bonds. And uh, recently, uh, Moody's just uh, downgraded uh, Ford uh, to a triple B minus with a negative outlook. That one has $52 billion in senior unsecured U.S. dollar-denominated bonds. So that's a total of $191 billion in senior unsecured bonds that could eventually fall below investment grade, joining the $1.3 trillion in high-yield uh, dollar-denominated bonds uh, for U.S. issuers. That, that would be so, a 15% uh, increase in the supply. Yeah, well, that would be uh, uh, that would be uh, a major accession. With, uh, and, you know, because in markets, of course, all the important things occur at the margin. 15% would be an enormous marginal increase. My goodness. Tony, what... Uh, in, we've talked about leveraged loans, senior claims. Um, is there anything different to be wary of in uh, in debentures and in uh, in unsupported and uh, unsecured debt? You're talking about generally high yield trends, other than that? yes. I mean, yes. It, one of the, another one of the things that we've seen fairly recently that that are pretty uh, problematic are um, this this idea of being able to incur unlimited secured debt ahead of secured bonds, which on, on, ahead of unsecured bonds, which doesn't sound good for you if you're an unsecured bondholder. So there are certain covenant packages that occasionally have this loophole inserted into it. And basically what it says is, I mean, a typical liens covenant in a typical high yield indenture, as you might imagine, would restrict the ability of the issuer to incur secured debt above a certain amount. You would expect That's what so. you would expect as an issuer, but on, as, as a bondholder rather. But unfortunately for some of these issuers, they have inserted a loophole into the liens covenant that basically says any lien securing any credit facilities incurred under the debt covenant are allowed to be secured. And then, unfortunately, when you go and look at the word credit facility, the way it's defined, that word is defined to basically include everything, bonds, loans, etc. So even though you have something that looks like a liens covenant, and if you're reading it quickly, you're saying, okay, they, they can incur only a certain amount of liens under this definition for permitted liens, or they've got to equally and rateably secure my bonds. When you read the fine print, and in particular, permitted liens clause one, you find out that that is in fact not the case. They can prime you with uncapped amounts of secured debt. Now, the funny footnote to this flaw is that in 2011 and 2012, a lot of energy bonds were issued with this same exact flaw. And people were sanguine about it then because the bonds were performing and people were pretty uh, pretty upbeat about those credits. But when you fast forward three years to when the bottom starts falling out of those credits, those issuers look to those flaws to help manage maturities, roll maturities forward, and capture discounts. So we wrote about this ahead of time. And, and unfortunately, some of those issuers ended up using that flaw against bondholders. So we thought that the market had kind of gotten its education on why this flaw should not be in high-yield unsecured bonds. But you know, even as recently as last week, Matador Resources issued new bonds due 2026. And if you look in it, it's got the same flaw. This this permitted liens clause one allows uncapped debt to be secured. You know what? This is this is so interesting and, um, and not a little worrying from the point of view of those who either invest in bonds directly or those who are the supposed beneficiary of professional investments in bonds. You know, um, just on the merits of interest rates uh, alone, creditors are really being grossly underpaid. It's like the treasury market. You know, Evan Lorenz is going to signal me here if his mic is not on, but the I think the long-term real rate of return on 10-year treasuries was something like 230 basis points, right? Was, that's real rate of return. And now it's like, uh, let's see, it's uh, nothing, actually. You subtract 
subtract the yield from the measured rate of inflation. So interest rates are very low, uh, returns to creditors, ditto. And on top of all that, there is seemingly the, uh, the uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but the, the professional incompetence of those who are dealing as stewards with other people's money and not paying attention to how they might get hoodwinked and otherwise have their pockets picked by, by the borrowers. If I sound indignant, Tony, it's, it's because I, I'm, I'm working myself up to it. Should I calm down or should I become as indignant as I am now or more? No, so? I think that the uh, I think that the outrage is is uh, is reasonable uh, given what the term what the terms in some of these documents say. Now, yeah. I, I can say that having talked to a number of investors on the buy side, I understand the uh, the, the the quandary that they're in they're placed in sometimes when you're dealing with performing credit and all of a sudden every indenture seems to have significant flaws in it. And if one were yeah. to decide not to invest in any of them, they're not going to have a job for very long when compared with their industry peers. But all of that being said, I think that it's critical that people have baked the risk in these documents into the price of, you know, the interest rate of these securities. Yeah, cruder. So are you are you hiring? Well, it, it apparently everybody's hiring. I, I read that. The, the labor market is on fire. Not just anyone should you hire. You need great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right person to show up. So ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter does not stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. Uh, the gift keeps on giving. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So businesses of uh, all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, uh, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com grant. ZipRecruiter.com grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, um, Tony, you've been around to Tony Canale, of, um, who heads the research effort at uh, Covenant Review. Tony, you have been, um, you know, a quarter century out of Columbia College and uh, and um, and uh, not quite that long out of law school, and you have held important jobs in law firms. All of these, all of this work uh, focused on the this uh, kind of uh, cooperative combat uh, between creditors and debtors. Have you observed a tendency of things to get looser and therefore, from the point of view of the investor, more risk fraud as the credit cycle ripens, as uh, as the previous recession recedes into the distance, as people gain more confidence, um, do terms and conditions customarily loosen? And if so, uh, what uh, what moment in the credit cycle, this imaginary uh, spectrum between, you know, uh, between fear and overconfidence, where are we in this journey, uh, creditors and debtors? Where, where, where are we? now? Is it, is it, does it seem like a credit cycle peak to you based upon uh, difficulties in this fine print? You know, and when we're talking about trying to predict where the top of the market is relative to terms and, and, and the underlying, you know, the overall uh, the, the overall uh, characteristics of credit, I'm not an economist, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you, you know, an answer that's not going to be the best answer. I do think that what we're seeing now in the market is approaching the very worst that we did see right at the last peak that I can remember, which is, you know, the, that late 2006 
2006, early 2007, right before, even late 2007, where you saw sponsor documents that were just horrendous and that formed the basis of a lot of later coercive actions. I think we're approaching that point now. I think one of the differences between today and 2007 is that there is a covenant review in the space. There are even competitors of ours who are calling investors' attention to these flaws that just did, that, that, that didn't exist before. So in 2007, when you saw a really toppy market and outrageously drafted covenants, you basically had an underwriting schema that was the issuer, the issuer's counsel, and an underwriter that worked for the issuer and the underwriter's counsel. And these things kind of went into the market, and there wasn't this apparatus to kind of evaluate these terms and, and, and yeah. let the buy side know, watch out for this and watch out for that. That's changed. Well, I'm glad that Covenant Review is on the scene and uh, is uh, sounding the alarm. What we need is people to listen to it, I suppose. Hey, Tony, um, this is Jeb. You know, um, one of the big differences between 2007 and the eve of the Great Recession and today is the rise of passive investing, uh, ETFs and so forth. Now, does anyone at uh, at the iShares iBox High Yield Corporate Bond ETF or the SPDR, the Spider Bloomberg Barclays High Yield Bond Fund, do any people read documents? And if they don't, where does that leave uh, you and where does that leave the market? You know, I'm honestly not sure if anybody there is involved on the compliance side looking at the uh, at the terms and conditions of, of these various bonds. And if they're not, um, it leaves them into, you know, in the same place that it leaves a lot of investors that are not paying attention to the terms and conditions of these things. They are, you know, exposed to the market to the extent that an aggressive issuer decides to, you know, take advantage of these provisions that have been included in these documents. And, you know, uh, I, I guess the rationale, you know, if, if, if there isn't that compliance taking place, I guess the rationale would be, well, we're just designed to track the broader market, however that performs. But again, uh, you know, as a, as, as a high-yield lawyer, I'm very wary of uh, scenarios in which investors don't read the T's and C's and, and don't understand their exposure. Tony Canale, uh, thank you for being with us. It has been delightful, informative, and uh, come back again. Best luck to you at Covenant Review, and especially good luck to uh, the readers, or the, uh, I guess, especially luck is needed for the non-readers of the fine prints we call indentures. So until next time, thank you, Tony. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure being with you. Tony, thank you. And Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Um, I would be remiss as uh, as myself, a kind of a capitalist. Uh, you know, I, we have we have sponsors, and, and we have uh, a sponsor sitting right here in this very seat. And this sponsor would like to remind you of the uh, upcoming fall grants conference. That's uh, October 9th, is it not, Eric? I think yes, uh, yes he's he uh, agrees. It's October 9th in New York at the Plaza Hotel, and we've been having these conferences twice a year for more than 30 years. This one will mark our 35th year in business, so it's going to be extra special. And uh, I want you to be there for it. You can, uh, if you want, you can access it remotely through our webcast or I much preferred, come and say hello. Come to the plaza, uh, take a seat and uh, immerse yourself in a full day of the very smartest people saying the most interesting things. So the Grants Conference on October 9th, please be there. Until next time, this is Jim Grant on behalf of uh, the Current Yield Podcast.